for those of us who are Christians, we base our religion on the proof that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. It is the fundamental truth of our faith. It's absolutely necessary to everything we believe and do. Therefore, it's very important to be able to prove that that is, in fact, the case. That Jesus is the only begotten Son of God from heaven. How do we prove that? Well, the Scriptures provide many forms of proof, and we've talked about lots of them at various times in our studies together. But the ultimate proof, the most powerful proof of all, has to do with the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. In Romans chapter 1, at verse 4, it says that he was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. I believe the Apostle Paul holds out that the resurrection is the most essential proof that Jesus is the Son of God. There are other proofs, plenty of them, but this is the proof, the powerful proof, of most powerful of all, that Jesus is the Son of God. And so it's necessary for us to study that and be reminded of the facts concerning the resurrection. We're going to talk more about that tonight. We're going to have a lesson about the evidences of the resurrection tonight, but we need to deal with something that goes before that, and that has to do with the crucifixion of Jesus. And this morning we want to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. Of course, this is critical to a study of the resurrection, because if you're going to have a resurrection, you must first have a dead man. And we're going to see very clearly from the scriptures and from the historical uh, evidence that Jesus certainly did die on the cross of Calvary. We can look at that from just an analytical point of view, a man dying and how he died. But of course, the thing for us as Christians that we want to be reminded of is that Jesus did that for us, that he died on the cross in order that we might have the forgiveness of sins. We want to talk about that great sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary in our study this morning. Thank you all for being here today. We're glad that you're present. We have visitors, and we're always grateful for visitors. We want you to know that. We want to make you feel welcome. If there's anything at all that we can do to help or assist you, especially in regards to studying the Bible or knowing more about the will of God, please say so, and we would gladly study with you. Just say a word, and we'll make that possible. But we appreciate you coming. We're glad for every worshiper this morning, for our own College View family, we're glad that you're here. We draw great strength and encouragement from you. And uh, we, we rejoice at times like this that we can be together. Thanks for being present this morning. Let's talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, again, what we really want to establish is there's not any shadow of a doubt that Jesus certainly died on the cross of Calvary. But then, of course, keep thinking. He went through all of this, every bit of it, he went through in order that we might have the remission of sins. I also want you to think as we're going through this study about the fact that Jesus, I believe, clearly had the power at any point in this process to bring it to a halt. He could have stopped at any point and said, it's enough, we won't go any further. We're not dealing with this anymore. He could have done that. But remember, Jesus said in John, he said, I laid down my life and I can take it up again. Jesus voluntarily went through all that we'll be talking about this morning. Let's break this study down as we have in the past to some things that happened before he was ever nailed to the cross of Calvary. These are important. We're going to establish that Jesus was in very bad physical condition even before they nailed him to the cross of Calvary. It started out with what we understand to be a sleepless night of prayer in the garden. In Luke chapter 22, verse 39 beginning, it says he, went, he came out and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives and his disciples also followed him. Remember, he went out there to pray. 
And as that text goes on down toward verse 44, he says, Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. We draw your attention to these great drops of blood. His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood. There's been controversy through the centuries as to the meaning of that expression. Luke, the physician, records that. Some have suggested and even offered some physiological proof that under periods of great stress, emotional uh, uh, trauma and so forth, that it's possible for the tiny capillaries of blood in the sweat glands to break and blood become mingled with the sweat. It may be that that's what Luke has reference to here. At the very least, there's just no doubt that Jesus was under a great emotional trauma at this point as he anticipated what was coming. You know, any normal man could have understood about crucifixion and what was about to transpire, but add to that the fact that Jesus would have had divine insights into the, into the moments that would follow, the hours that were coming, the great agony and torture that he would suffer Jesus knew what was coming, and he was in a tremendous emotional distress at that time in the garden. We know that Jesus was betrayed by a friend. Judas Iscariot, of course, brought the soldiers to come and arrest him. And the question might be asked, why was that necessary for Judas to provide that function? Jesus, after all, was a public figure. He was out in the open every day. He was in the common places. He was, in, he was at Jerusalem during this Passover week and obviously was out in the open in the temple square teaching and, and mingling with the people. Why didn't they just grab him? The answer to that, of course, is because he was very popular with the common people. And if the authorities had attempted to arrest him in their presence, there's a good chance that a riot would have broken out in response to that. So they needed to catch Jesus when he was off by himself somewhere where they could arrest him. And Judas provided that role. In Luke chapter 22, beginning verse 2, the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money, and he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them, notice, in the absence of the multitude. So he was looking for a chance when Jesus is off away somewhere where we can grab him, and we won't have to deal with the crowds, the people who love him. And so Judas betrayed him. Again, I want you to just try to imagine this scenario as it develops. Imagine you being in a situation, and a person that you believed was a friend betrayed you to be executed. That in itself would have been a great emotional blow. But it wasn't just Judas. We know that he was also deserted by all of his closest friends. We very often talk about Simon Peter. You remember Peter had said, I'll never leave you. And Jesus said, before the cock crows, you'll deny me thrice. And Peter did. We often talk about Peter and his denial of Jesus. But Peter wasn't the only one of his disciples who did that. In Matthew chapter 26, uh, it says, verse 56, Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Notice emphasis on all of them. Now, it appears that John may have come back a little closer during the process of the trials and so forth, but none of them were with him side by side as he faced all of these difficult things that were about to happen to him. He was deserted by all of his closest friends. We know that he went through the process of six trials, we use that word very loosely, in a period of just a few hours. Last Sunday evening, we talked about the process of the trials, both the Jewish trial and the Roman trial of Jesus. 
We know that he was questioned before Annas and Caiaphas, the two men who were called high priests at that time, then before the whole Sanhedrin council, then before Pilate. Pilate sent him to Herod, back to Pilate again. I just remind you of that study we did last week. Of course, during the process of all that, he was subjected to lies and false charges. They couldn't charge him with anything true because he was an innocent man, a perfect and sinless man. He had never done anything worthy of being arrested or tried or convicted or executed. And so it says in Mark chapter 14, beginning verse 57, there arose certain and bare false witness against him. Notice it says, but neither so did their witness agree together. I'm trying to get you to imagine yourself in this same situation. Let's say that you are arrested. You didn't do anything, but somebody comes and arrests you. And quickly they put you on trial. And in the course of this trial, people come forth and tell lies about what you've said, what you've done, things that are not true. But you know that their intention is to to find some justification to sentence you to death. Can you imagine how emotionally trying that would be to know that you're on trial for your life and these people are lying about what you have said and done? In Luke 23, verse 2, here's an example of the kind of lies. It says, they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. Now, we know that to be an outright lie, don't we? Because when he had been questioned, not that long before, in Matthew 22, they... Jesus said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things which are Caesar, unto God the things that are God's. Jesus had never taught them to withhold their their tribute money or the taxes that should be paid to the Roman governor. And yet that's one of the lies that they posed against him. It was all a put-up deal in order to be able to convict him uh, and sentence him to death. In the course of all this, we know that he was humiliated and mistreated. Matthew 26, 67, they did spit in his face and buffeted him. Others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? As I've read that verse before, I've often thought about how easy it would have been for Jesus to do exactly what they were taunting him to do. Notice they slapped him with their hands and said, Tell me, who is it? And Jesus could have said, I know who you are. He could have given their name. He could have told where they lived, what work they did. He could have told who their parents were. He could have told them everything about their lives if he wanted to. But of course, Jesus didn't even respond with a defense in words. We believe that Jesus could have easily defended himself against this whole process if he wanted to. He could have, I think, pretty easily have assembled an army to fight in his defense. He didn't do that. He said he could call down legions of angels to defend him. He didn't do that. We know that he still had miracle power within him because he he was still performing miracles remember he he healed the ear of the of the servant of the high priest that peter had struck off in the garden but he didn't use his miracles to keep from this process continuing and he didn't even use a defense of words he didn't even try to defend himself verbally as these people were ridiculing him lying about him and then of course uh humiliating him and mistreating him in this fashion now Please understand, this is all piling up. All of this is adding up to the stress that Jesus is enduring at this time. And then, of course, comes the scourging. In Matthew chapter 27, beginning verse 24, where uh, Zach was reading earlier, Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made. He took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, see ye to it. 
When he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now that's all that the scripture text says there. It mentions a scourging. And we might not even dwell on that too much unless we investigate it a little bit to find out what a scourging at the hand of the Romans would have been like. The scourge whip would have been something that looked like this. Instead of just a maybe a bull whip, a whip with just one strand that we might commonly think of, the Roman scourge looked more like this. It was a wooden-handled thing with several strands of leather tied to it. And even in the ends of the leather strips, they would have they would have braided or weaved in bits of bone or metal or glass so that as the leather whip came across the back, it would actually tear the flesh away. A man named Truman Davis, who wrote about this, a medical doctor, had this to say about how it went. He said, the heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across the shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead, which would have been weaved into the ends of those metal or uh, leather strips, the small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which are broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it's determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped. We should emphasize here that this beating was at the hands of the Romans, not the Jews. We know the Jews had, by law, a rule that a man could not be beaten with more than 40 stripes. They would frequently beat him 40 stripes, save one. 39, just in case we counted wrong, won't go over the limit. They were careful not to go over a, 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 an imposed limit. The Romans didn't have that kind of a limit. And so, in the case of Jesus, he would have been beaten literally until the centurion in charge said, stop, if you hit him again, he's liable to die right here on the spot. Very literally, it's not an exaggeration to say that Jesus was beaten to the very point of death. There's a probability, perhaps a high probability, that if Jesus had not been subsequently crucified, he might have proceeded to die just from the injury suffered in this scourging. Jesus was beaten almost to death in that scourging. Then, of course, we have the, the purple robe and the crown of thorns. Uh, Matthew 27, 28 says, They stripped him, put on him a scarlet robe. When they had plated the th crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. As we have studied this story before, we get to this point, the crown of thorns almost seems anticlimactic, doesn't it? After you talk about that scourging and the, and the, the physical torture of that scourging, to, to put thorns into the scalp seems almost insignificant. But that in itself would have been an excruciatingly painful thing. And of course, they weren't content to just place it there. They beat it into his scalp with that reed that they were using as a pretend scepter all of this, of course, brutally torturing Jesus. Notice they, there's the crown of thorns in his head, the reeds to drive it in further. Think about when they took that robe off of his bloody back now. Very likely the, the robe would have, uh, the blood would have coagulated to that scarlet robe and when they pulled it away from his back, more bleeding would take place. Great torture that Jesus is enduring. And then he was forced to carry his own cross. John 19, verse 16, they delivered 
him, then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. Jesus uh, made to carry his own cross. We know the other gospel accounts suggest that he was in such a weakened state at this point that he wasn't able to make it. And Simon of Cyrene was enlisted to carry it the rest of the way. Just carrying that cross. There have been some studies. Mike Johnson recently forwarded me some information about just the very fact of carrying that cross would have been an almost impossible physical challenge that was placed upon Jesus. Now, again, we haven't even talked about him on the cross of Calvary yet. We haven't even got to the crucifixion yet. All of these are the things that happened to him before they took him to the place where they would crucify him. What, are you, what kind of condition do you figure Jesus is in at this point? You've got to admit that he would have been a man in a terribly weakened physical condition, in horrible physical shape after the torture that he has already endured. Well, then we bring him to the cross, to the point of crucifixion. Uh, the gospel accounts are really brief in regards to the crucifixion. It just says they did it. And they don't give much information about what was involved in crucifying a man. That's probably based on the fact that people of that time would have known a lot about crucifixion because they would have witnessed it so many times. Uh, historical accounts suggest that the Romans were crucifying people by the hundreds and thousands uh, in this era. So very likely, everybody in the vicinity of Jerusalem would have seen people crucified before. The Romans used it as a deterrent. Uh, they wanted people to know, you oppose the Roman government in any shape, form, or fashion, you may likely end up on a cross. And they had these people publicly crucified to serve as a mechanism to keep the peace, to keep people from the rebelling against them. So the folks back in that time would have known about crucifixion. Thankfully, we live in a time where that's not common and we've not witnessed it. And that being the case, it's necessary for us to spend a little time understanding the process of crucifixion. It was common to nail a person to a cross in that way. Now, Please understand, I'm not suggesting this to be a picture of Jesus on the cross. I don't prefer to draw such pictures or even view such pictures of Jesus on the cross. This is just meant to be indicative of a typical crucifixion victim hanging on a cross. Notice that the arms are outstretched and the knees are bent uh, when they are mounted on the cross. Uh, quoted that medical doctor, Truman Davis, earlier. Here's what he has to say about this. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. The victim fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Then he goes on, uh, then we know as it goes on that when the authorities want the victim to die, what they would typically do would be break the bones of the legs so that the man can't push himself up with his legs to get a breath of air. And so this was the process. They would hang by their arms until they couldn't stand that any longer because it was making it hard to breathe. They would get short of breath. They would put push down their weight on the feet to relieve the muscles uh, across the shoulders and chest so they could breathe, especially to exhale the air. But, of course, their legs and their feet couldn't stand that pain for very long and they would slump down again. So... For hours, we know that in the case of Jesus, he was on the cross for six hours. For six hours, Jesus struggled for breath in this fashion. This is borne out by the fact that Jesus 
only has seven statements recorded as he was hanging on the cross, and it's interesting to note that each of the statements is shorter than the one before it, probably indicative of the fact that Jesus was struggling to even breathe. We know in the case of Jesus, they came, remember, they came to break his bones of his leg. They broke the bones of the two thieves who were crucified beside him, but they didn't break his bone of his leg. In answer to prophecy, they did not break any bone of his body. He was dead already. Uh, but that is the fashion in which they would crucify such a person. Uh, for a long time, there was a lot of controversy about whether or not Jesus could have been nailed to the cross. A lot of skeptics said, they didn't nail people to the crosses, they tied them to the cross with ropes. And that is known to be the fact that sometimes they did tie, maybe even a majority of instances, they tied victims to the cross. The Bible says that Jesus was nailed to his cross. John 20, verse 25, remember doubting Thomas? Doubting Thomas said, except I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. When Jesus appeared, he said to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. Thomas said, I'm not going to believe until I see where they nailed his hands. Jesus, when he showed himself, Thomas said, look at my hands. Jesus, the Bible says, was nailed to the cross. Interestingly, and, and a fairly recent archaeological discovery uh, in a tomb near Jerusalem bears out that the Romans did, in fact, nail victims to crosses. This is from the uh, Israel Exploration Journal, uh, and it, it, this is a quote. It says, they found this skeleton, obviously not the skeleton of Jesus, but they found a skeleton. Both the heel bones were found transfixed by a large iron nail. The shins were found intentionally broken, death caused by crucifixion. That's what they discovered in that archaeological dig. And so, again, uh, there's that quote, and, and so again, we talk about the crucifixion. Six long hours, Jesus hung on the cross, struggling for breath, and he died. Now, if we stopped right there, we wouldn't have all the information confirming his death on the cross. We have some more. There's some things that happened after he died on the cross. We might call them post-crucifixion events, or at least events that happened right at the end of that process. Any possibility he might have survived up to this point in time is dispelled when we consider the final mistreatment of Jesus' body at the hands of a Roman soldier. John chapter 19, verse 32 says, Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. Emphasis on that last phrase, there came out blood and water. Medical authorities have concluded that in the case of Jesus, at this point in the process of the torture of his body, probably the only place in the body where there would have been a, a pool of blood and water that would produce a visible flow was in the heart, the pericardium, the sack of fluids that surround the heart. He would have been uh, pretty well bled out by this point in time and very dehydrated. And perhaps the only place where a spear could a thrust could produce a visible flow of blood and water would be the pericardium, the sac fluids around the heart. There's a high likelihood then that when the Roman soldier put that spear into the body of Jesus, that he actually drove the spear through to the heart, which of course a Roman soldier would have been trained to do anyway. So very likely that spear thrust went to the heart of Jesus. Is he dead? 
Is he really dead yet? We're going to talk tonight about the resurrection and proof of the resurrection. But before you can talk about a resurrection, you've got to make sure that Jesus was dead. Was he dead? Well, yeah. I mean, what right-thinking person could read that story and say, oh, he, he survived all that? Surely he's alive. No, he's not alive. We actually have a final confirmation of death. Uh, remember uh, that Joseph of Arimathea sought for the body of Jesus to bury it. Uh, it says in Mark 15, verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea went boldly to Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead and called unto him the centurion and asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. The Roman authorities confirm Jesus is dead. Uh, a man named Paul Meyer, professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University, wrote this. He said, uh, death by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans was an extremely efficient method of crucifixion. True, there is a recorded instance of a victim being taken down from a cross and surviving. And here's that instance. The Jewish historian Josephus, who had gone over to the Roman side in the rebellion of 66 A.D., discovered three of his friends being crucified. He asked the Roman general Titus to reprieve them, and they were immediately removed from their crosses. Still, two of the three died anyway, even though they apparently had been crucified only a short time. In Jesus' case, however, there were the additional complications of scourging and exhaustion, to say nothing of the great spear thrust that pierced his ribcage and probably ruptured his pericardium. Here's the point. Here's the quote. Romans were grimly efficient about crucifixions, Victims did not escape with their lives. So Jesus was certainly dead on the cross of Calvary. And so there's the story. There's all that happened to Jesus in the process of dying. And we need to know those facts. As we said, we need to know it just by virtue of fact that we, if we're just sort of analytically studying the, the, the crucifixion and resurrection. But on a more personal basis, we need to take it to ourselves and say, all of that happened to him because of me. He endured all of that agony. He went through all that torture. He suffered all that pain for me. We need to realize that's so. You've seen pictures. Artists through the centuries have made it a point to try and depict what Jesus looked like hanging on the cross of Calvary. And you might call to mind some of those pictures that you've seen as they've tried to picture Jesus hanging there. Think about that, and you'll remember that the pictures usually show just a little bit of blood. They show a little trickle of blood coming from where the nails pierced his hands and his feet. A little blood maybe running down his forehead where those thorns were in his scalp. And maybe a slit in his side and just a little bit of blood running from that slit in his side where the Roman soldier pierced him with the spear. That picture is pretty clean and totally unrealistic. That's not what Jesus looked like. The reason why the artists never paint a picture of what Jesus really looked like is nobody would want to look at that. It'd be too horrific to view. If you want to really picture what Jesus looked like as he hung there dead on the cross, Picture a man just completely bathed in his own blood. Just so covered red with his own blood. Completely tortured, mutilated, murdered, killed for us, for our sins. That we might have the hope of a, of a heavenly home because of the sacrifice that he paid for us. Have you obeyed the gospel plan of salvation yet? Are you a true Christian? 
upon hearing the facts of the gospel, will you believe them? And on the basis of that faith, will you repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, and be baptized for the remission of sins? We beg you to make that decision without delay. He paid that price for you. Are you a Christian already, but you've let the world get a hold of you again and draw you back in? Realize in the doing that, the Hebrew writer says, we crucify afresh the Son of God when we deny Him. You want to be guilty of crucifying again the one who went through that the first time for you? If you're a Christian but you've not been faithful to Him, we beg you to come back in repentance, confession, prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song.